And so it begins. Okay, so, <clears throat> so today, and probably the next day or two, uh, sort of introductory stuff, uh, some of this... Probably some of it, especially stuff to the end, will be stuff that you're you're used to. Uh, other stuff won't be. Um, so most classes start out this way. Well, they don't start with what is learning, but they start out with what is whatever the hell it is you're studying. So the question is, you know, what is learning? People think about certain things. Some examples, and this is all just off the top of my head. I mean, I, I didn't, you know, this isn't stuff I <clears throat> looked up anywhere or anything like that. It's more just off the top of my head. Uh, kids in school, right? You think about learning right away. You might think about, oh well, this is how say children learn something. That's a pretty common kind of thing to think about. Uh, studying, right? Students think about that. How how does it work that you learn uh, uh, items? You learn stuff in class and then remember it. So, you know, but it's good studying techniques, that kind of stuff. Uh, people with disabilities, so, for example, how someone with a learning disability might learn. Uh, you might even think of something like how, if you're a little, you know, a little more sophisticated, and I think probably most of you are, you might think about something like using sort of behavior therapy to help people with autism cope in, in, in daily life. So you might think of stuff like that. And as I said here, the uh, study of learning certainly has things to say about these things. So there's no doubt, in fact, that the stuff we'll talk about in this course can be applied to these things. That's, that's true. You talk about other things, too. This is more along the lines of how I would think about this. What cognitive co uh, constants are there across species? Right, because for the most part in this class, we're going to be talking at all about people. We're going to be talking about, as I said the other day, rats and pigeons and things like that. What cognitive constants are there across species? Right, so you might think of something like I mentioned the other day in the sort of the first little intro lecture thing, the idea that of, of, of uh, habituation. Right which will be one of the first things we'll talk about. And it... Please annoys me. It... Is, it shows up in every single animal, including something with 302 neurons, a nematode, which is a flatworm, a little tiny flatworm. And it shows up in us. That's a cognitive constant. And all it is, is basically habituation is, it's not getting used to something, but it's not responding to something that's inconsequential. So it's kind of like getting used to something, kind of, right? I'm sure I'm recording here because it's the first one in four months. Yes, good. Um, and you would probably see that, you know, that's something that would be useful for any species on the planet. The ability to ignore unimportant stuff, right? You can flip that on its side, though, and look at what cognitive differences are there across species. Think of something. What do you think of a cognitive or learning difference there are across species? Can you think of something? 
ideas? What am I doing right now? I'm using language. Any other species use language? No. Don't give me that ape language shit. That's all crap. <laughs> it's interesting, but it's not language. And by the way, even if they can, who invented language? Well, that would be us then, wouldn't it? So we win. We're wrecking the place, but we still win. <laughs> so that's some pretty special. Humans have, a, have the ability to learn symbolic syntactic language, and no other animal can do that. That's a, that's a cognitive difference. Pretty obvious one. What about things like Oh, you start to see it now, hear it especially. You hear the geese flying. Well, maybe you all see it. I don't see it that well. I hear it a lot, though. The geese flying overhead. They're flying away. They're leaving. And they get to where they're going. That's pretty impressive, right? Not all animal species do that. Not all animal species do that. They don't all migrate. So this sort of long-term navigation isn't something they probably are able to do. In fact, if you look at a songbird, most songbirds, for example, so let's move away from geese, because I don't, I don't like geese. But songbirds, right? So you think of something like robins. Robins fly away. They migrate, they leave. Most songbirds do that, right? Food supply dwindles. They leave. They fly south. Unless they're from the southern hemisphere. Then they fly north. <laughs> it's a whole different thing. Everything's backwards down there. I got friends in Australia, they live in the future. Because they're day ahead of us. Flying cars. No, there's not. I made that part up. So they most songbirds fly, but not all songbirds do, right? Birds that store food, right? Chickadees and, 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 and blue jays, things like that. They don't fly away. So they don't do long-term navigation, or like long-distance navigation. Can they navigate? Yeah, they can get back to where their nest is, where they've sort of hanging out. Sure, they can do something else special, which is remember where they put food that they hid the day before, the week before, month before. Robins don't do that. They deal with a fluctuating food supply a different way. They just go, well, that's it. We should probably leave then. They're both excellent solutions to this evolutionary sort of pressure, there's different, different solutions. So those are interesting differences. So there, there's a number of potential differences between species in learning. Right? Oh, yeah, please, sorry, go ahead. Would mating be a cognitive difference or cognitive cause? How do you mean? Well, because most animals mate, but different ways, like animals mate different ways, I think it's pretty built in, though. Yeah. Like I think most, I don't think you have to, I don't think there's ever a case where a robin looks at its little fledgling and before he throws, she throws him out of the nest, says, I gotta have a talk with you. This <laughs> is how this works. Um, and really, you wouldn't even have to do, I know we do that with humans because, well, we, we want some time to feel really uncomfortable, so we talk about sex <laughs> with our children. And, um, but you wouldn't really have to explain it. Eventually, it just sort of happens. So, but who to mate with is an interesting question. Right? There's something called filial imprinting. So, filial, like family, kind of, and so 
<laughs> it may have two L's. Um, interesting, actually. But perhaps it's three. Um, so filial imprinting, it's got at least one L in it. It goes at least two. Maybe it's maybe seven. But so filial imprinting, it's interesting because this happens in birds typically. What they do is they learn what species to mate with. And how do we know this? Well, because we can do clever experiments where we take uh, young, sort of, well, I guess you call them adolescent birds, you might say. So juveniles is the typical term we use by adolescents. I don't know why I said that. Um, and if you expose them to a different species, that's what they will try to mate with. So there is learning that happens there. But that doesn't seem to happen in all species. That seems to be a pretty common thing among many birds. But it doesn't happen really in, in mammals, for example. There are interesting things, and if you're taking evolutionary psych, you'll hear me talk about this in humans, and probably other species as well, where we learn that the people we grew up with, we shouldn't mate with. And that's a pretty specialized thing. Because when you think about it, this is going to sound gross. But when you think about it, your brother or sister are an excellent mating partner. You know them really well. You know all their good and bad points. You could make a really informed decision. The only problem is, you know what, with recessive genes and such. And you're thinking, ew, no, but it's gross. Yeah, but why is it gross? Because there's probably some mechanism in humans and other species as well that says, you know your brothers and sisters? No, that's gross. Don't. And this is interesting because it's also true if you grow up with a kid who's adopted. Because that's the test, right? You might think, well, maybe you're just detecting that it's you're genetically related. You're actually not. Because people are disgusted, cross-culturally, by the way. There isn't a culture that goes, nah, that's okay. If you really want to, no, that doesn't happen. So even if you grow up with somebody and you know that you're adopted, it's still people, it, it literally, there's a disgust reaction that happens. Right, so we learn that we're, 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 it's kind of it's not it's, it's, it's as complicated as language, but there's this special word that there's this pre, almost preparedness is a word people have used. It's like there's a specialized module that detects. Oh, I've spent a lot of time with this person who's about the same age as me. I probably should be disgusted by the, the idea, even remotely, of even holding their hand. It's probably a little strong. So, I mean, there are things about mating where learning certainly plays a role. So I think, I think if, if uh, the idea of how to do it, probably not, but the idea of who to do it with, sure. And it's going to be different from, in different species. Here's a, an applied question. How do you make good rat poison? Hmm. It's interesting because rats, you know are bad out in the wild. There's two kinds of rats. There's wild rats that are bad and lab rats that are good. So, because wild rats carry, you know, oh, plague. <laughs> like they carry horrible diseases. So we don't need rats around. It's bad for the whole situation. Lab rats are also cute, whereas, you ever seen a wild rat? They're not. They're vicious, horrible-looking things. Lab rat I'd pick up and put on my shoulder. Right? I used to carry them when I was an undergrad doing rat stuff. I would literally carry them from the housing room to the, to the experimental room on my shoulder. 
put them there. They violated all kinds of codes, but everybody did that. I was writing lab code. Put them up here, and then he'd, he'd, he'd usually, they'd usually chew in my earrings. But they'd never rip at them. They were cute. They were like little tiny little faces and little personalities. Then there's, you know, sewer rats. Where you think you've got to equip a weapon, and it's like you're in an RPG. So, or you might just want to get an RPG. It's a rocket propelled So, we want to kill rats because, you know, because they're a health problem. Now, you want to give, you want them to eat the poison, don't you? You want to give them enough that it kills them. You don't want to give them just a little bit. Because rats are kind of, there's all kinds of, rats can't puke. There's, this is, this is, if you learn anything today, you just learn rats can't vomit. Other animals can't. Blue jays vomit. I, got, I can't find this picture. I, I had it of a blue jay throwing up after eating a monarch butterfly. <laughs> monarch butterflies are poisonous. And it's just this view. It's great. It's more like... <laughs> so, but rat, so that's how, and how do we deal with the same way. When we eat something that's a poison, we vomit. Like it just happens. Rats can't. They just can't. Their bodies can't puke. So what rats are, it's called, they say they're neophobic. They're afraid of new things. So when they get a new food item, they just a little tiny bit and wait like a day to see if they get sick. Pretty, pretty, you know, it's pretty cool. And they can learn that after one pairing of new food and sickness, they'll just avoid that food. So you can't give them something that they've tasted before, that they haven't tasted before, because they won't eat enough of the poison. And then they'll be sick. And you know what happens? Other rats will, this is real, by the way, will smell their breath, detect what they've eaten, and avoid that flavor. So you need something powerful enough that's going to kill the damn thing, something that's going to eat, but something that's probably not powerful enough that's going to kill people. So knowing about how rats learn about food and, and, their, and its gastrointestinal consequences is important. So how do you do this? You, you poison stuff they already eat. Right? And you make it powerful enough that it'll, it will kill them quickly so other rats don't come up and go, what's he even eating? But if they smell something, oh, you already... Oh, garbage. Well, we love that. That's not a problem. Delicious, delicious garbage. So knowing about learning can actually help us has helped people do things like do pest control. Here's a question. Do you, and the you, you here could be a person, you here could be a rat, you here could be uh, a marsh tit, because I'm going to use that example. Do you learn by doing, or can you learn by observing? I think people can learn by observing. This is a hard thing to test, by the way. It's a hard thing to test, because there's so many conflicts. But I'm pretty sure we can learn by, humans can learn by, by, by observing. We know, you know the classic Bandura experiment with the Bobo doll, the, or as we used to call it, let's get a punching clown. Right? You know that experiment? Right? The little nursery school kids, they see somebody hit the thing and get mad at it, and then they do the same thing, and they see somebody not hit it and play with it in a different way, and they play that way. That's pretty clearly observational learning. And we can even see just anecdotally. Right? 
Back before the Food Network became a, just a channel all about cupcake wars, there was uh, all kinds of instructional things on it. You'd learn to cook things by watching people cook. And now it's just like all reality shows. I mean, I watch them. Don't, don't misunderstand me. Top Chef is one of my favorite shows ever. <laughs> Our whole PVR is all, it's just shows about Gordon Ramsay and Mayday episodes. Sounds Gordon, it's all So we know we can do it. There's been some, it's harder with animal stuff. Because the, the control kind of things are hard. Another anecdotal thing, um, uh, I, was a, I guess I was a postdoc, I was a postdoc at Western, and a person came and gave a talk about uh, orangutans. Orangutans are pretty cool animals, right? They aren't as closely related to us, say, as chimps or bonobos, but they're, you know, they're, they're apes like we are. Okay. We can learn by, by watching. Maybe they can learn by watching, too. And she was working at this, doing this sort of observational stuff, just watching things happen. At, uh, in Indonesia, at a colony that was rehabilitating orangutans that were, that were pets, that were in circuses, that were in zoos, and trying to help them learn to be orangutans, get out in the wild, which is a pretty noble and cool thing. So they got these uh, orangs and... The orangutans are, you ever see these guys, they, they've got the, their hands, but they look like a guy in a monkey suit. Like, they really look like people. And they're big, you know, like they're not, they're like this tall. They do some interesting things, right? When it rains, they make hats out of leaves. <laughs> they actually do, that's a thing. They, they don't like getting wet, so they take branches and stuff and put them on top of their head. And then... It turned out that they realized that the people just had hats and they all started stealing the people's hats. So she had this picture of an orangutan with an old tattered New York Yankees hat on, which was just great. And it's like, that looks like something from a movie from the 1930s. No, that just happened. Yeah, you might think, well, that's sensible. That's not really learned them, maybe not learning. And it's, nothing, it's not new behavior. Protecting your head when it rains is new behavior. So what about making new behavior happen? Sure. The people at, the, at the, this, this colony, this camp, whatever you want to call it, would, of course, brush their teeth. The orangutans watched this and decided they wanted to brush their teeth. So they stole people's toothbrushes, and they would brush their teeth. And one of us asked, what do you do when a... How do you get your toothbrush back? So you don't, and you don't want to. This <laughs> doesn't happen. Finally, one of the neat, well, finally, a couple things. They also found that the orangutans kind of liked people food. They liked the stuff the people were eating. They'd get leftovers sometimes, things like that. Of course, a lot, and a lot of these animals had, had been pets. So one day, one of them took a pot, filled it with water, sat it on the ground, put stones around it like there was a fire, and just waited for soup to happen. All the other orangutans are like, where's the soup? I don't know. I haven't figured out fire or ingredients yet. I'm an orangutan, not a person. And the way that they got the, the pot is they, did, they, they, they distracted one of the cooks. So two of them are over here running a little, little interference. Another one goes in and grabs a pot. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, one of the orangutans actually learned how to tie up a hammock, learned how to tie knots. 
And they're pretty sure they, she was pretty sure they learned to do this by watching the people do it. Because, of course, it's Indonesia. In the afternoon, you aren't out working in the heat. You, you sleep because you'll just heat stroke, right? Most of them couldn't. Most of them liked the hammocks, but they couldn't figure out. They take a ha- they, they just sort of throw the string over, and it would be sitting there, and they'd go to jump in, and they just <laughs> land straight on their back. So I mean that that's pretty suggestive, but it's still just naturalistic observation. There's still a proper researcher and all that stuff. It's still out in the wild. Another great example I mentioned marsh tits, which are a kind of bird in, in the UK. They're like chickadees. Uh, in fact, if you had a marsh here and a chickadee, you probably couldn't tell the difference. They're different species, but they're very, very similar. Very similar. Uh, their call is even very similar. The only difference is because they're British, it's like a chickadee dee dee, but they're very similar. And used to be, when I was a boy, you had, it was a milkman, and you'd get milk delivered to your house. That's gone, because. Wait, what a stupid... Anyway, um, so they deliver milk to your door like two times a week. You would just, and then you would leave the empty bottles on your porch and they'd take the empties. And you would get a bill. Like they would show up once a month and say, well, this is how much milk you have and they charge charge it. It was a strange, quaint kind of thing. There's also a guy who delivered juice as a kid. Bread. Bread, I, I don't, we never got bread, but there was a bread guy too, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not ancient, but this was like in the 1970s. Even. We have people deliver live chickens. I don't, now see that, I lived in Toronto. There were no live chicken delivery guys. <laughs> 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 Is it before, like, grocery stores were open all the time? They, well, they would open all the time. <clears throat> yeah, they were, and they would open at 9 o'clock in the morning and close at 5 kind of thing. So it's probably a lot of it's that. Um, but it was cool, you know, you could leave a little order form, like with the milk, you'd put it in the milk bottle and you just sit, like, sort of roll it up and sit it, and then they'd look and go, oh, he, they want this. Oh, the broadbacks want uh, some heavy cream and some 2%, and they keep go to his truck, put it up, leave it there, and then go back to his truck and go to his next stop. And everybody went use the milkman. It was a weird thing. So, in the really older days, they were, you know, and this is just after the war in the UK, the milk wasn't homogenous. Okay? So there'd be cream at the top, a lot more cream. It just don't, it, you just gotta shake it up. It's no big deal. These marsh tits loved this stuff. And it was just a foil covering. So they peck into this thing and eat it and then fly away. So what you're left with then is like not as fatty milk that a bird's had its mouth in. So you probably would throw it away. This phenomenon shows up in the southern part of England. It spreads all over the UK. And the idea was well, maybe the birds have actually learned by watching other birds to do this. And in fact, for years, everybody thought that's exactly what they've done. Until uh, a colleague of mine at the University of Western Ontario, you'll probably hear me talk a lot about him, uh, Dave Sherry, back when he was at uh, at the University of Toronto, he he said, well, let's test this. You know, it's it's 35 years later, 40 years later, let's test it. So he had one bird that they basically taught, we'll get to how you do this, but he taught it to go into a little cream tub, you know, like a little creamers for coffee. So the same idea, and to peck through the foil so they can get to the cream. And then he has it in one cage, and then a cage right beside it is another bird watching. That should work. If, if it's learning, 
if this phenomenon is because of learning, then we should actually see that the next bird, when you give it a, the creamer thing for the first time, should get it. And no. <laughs> so sadly, something else explains this strange spread of marsh tits stealing cream in the UK in the 1940s. But it wasn't, it wasn't a social learning phenomenon, which is what this called this. So it's a hard thing to demonstrate in animals. I think it probably happens. I think the orangutans, even though it's anecdotal, is a nice example. I think it probably happens in other animals. Right. Questions about that? Dave Sherry does, Dave Sherry and Scott McDougall Shackles in the Western, they do such cool work on birds. I hear a lot about them, I think, probably in this class. And uh, they actually have their own building. That's how important their work is. The Advanced Facility for Avian Research. And there's a wind tunnel in it. I was there this summer. They actually have a wind tunnel. So they can take it and say, they turn the wind on, and then they can change the atmosphere. And it's like, this now simulates a bird flying at 2,000 feet for six hours. And when you get in there and you're outside, it sounds like you're in the engine room of the Battlestar Galactica. It's just awesome. They got their, they got their own building. I got, I got nothing. They got a building. Anyway, so there's also the, my favorite example, lots of other stuff. So there's other things that learning can, a lot of issues, a lot of things we can talk about when we're um, talking about this. So, and still, what is learning? So there's a lot of issues, and this stuff may be easy, that boring. But the question still remains, you know, what is learning? Um, a typical one you'll hear is change resulting from experience. Change, and I guess we, we should throw in of behavior. Resulting from experience. And I believe that might even be the, what, what, what Mike Dominic says in the book. That doesn't, to me, that's not quite specific enough. It's not quite specific enough. It's close. Uh, everything we've talked about so far would be change resulting from experience, change of behavior resulting from experience. So I think we're okay there. Right? <laughs> That's great. Um, very nice. I prefer this definition. This is a definition that it's from Bob Rescorla. I told you we probably, you probably hear a lot of his name too. In fact, we will spend a good, we'll spend a lot of time in this course talking about his work. Pretty important guy. And a totally nice guy, too. The really famous people tend to be nice. Some event at time one affects behavior at time two. I like that definition. Now, obviously, it's not perfect, but it's okay. I think it gets the point across. So some event at time one affects behavior at time two. <coughs> would, would a lot of this just be considered imitation? How do you mean? Like it's just imitating? Like is that a form of learning? Yeah, sure, because I mean, if, if, if the, if those marsh tits were just imitating, if one was imitating another one, we'd still call that observational learning. It's just imitation, sure. Yeah, just yeah totally, okay. totally. 
right? And the event at time one is watching the other animal, and then the behavior at time two is doing what the animal, other animal did. The event at time one is the pairing of a tone and meat powder. The behavior at time two is salivating to the tone. The event at time one is reading a book. The behavior at time two is being able to say what was in the book. It's very broad. Now, obviously it's not perfect. If I chopped off one of your feet, I'm not going to, I'm not a madman, but if I chopped off one of your feet, you couldn't walk. Was that learning? No. Well, you'd probably learn to avoid me. That'd <laughs> <laughs> be about it. But the behavior that's changed is your ability to walk properly, but that wasn't about learning. That's a, that's a thing where you've lost some of the gear that allows you to walk. Right? So it's not perfect, but no definition tends to be anyway. But I like this one. I, I think it's broad enough. The other one's okay, too. Um, they're both pretty broad definitions. But I think they're also actually pretty reasonable. Because they encompass all the things that we think of as learning. I do like the second one better because it's a little more precise. It talks about time time one and time two. Time two obviously comes after time one. I like those kind of... That's a little bit better to me. Questions so far? You've been asking questions. This is good. Okay. Yeah, good. Thanks. What What did cause the the birth to peck uh, through? Like why did it spread? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I can tell you, it's not learning. It's not observational learning. Okay. So I, but I don't know. I don't think anybody knows what it is. It's exceedingly suggestive. But we know that it's not been. I can't say it's not learning. I shouldn't say that, I, but I can also not tell you that it's been shown that birds like that can learn observationally about how to eat stuff. There is, there's some stuff that's suggestive. Dave Sherry and one of his, uh, his, his students, Chris Hitchcock, they did some stuff where one bird would watch another bird store food, because chickens store food. Um, would the watcher learn where the other guy's food is stored, and it's not clear that they did. It seems like some did and some didn't. Right? So I can't say that the spread of cream tubby, of cream eating in, in marsh tits in the late 1940s, early 1950s in the UK was precipitated by learning, but it's not been demonstrated that they can learn that kind of behavior that way. So I don't really know. I like to still think it's learning, even though. But it seems you've got to kind of show me first. I really want it to be. And it wouldn't surprise me. But Dave tested it out, and he found that he couldn't do it. So, But it's a good question. I don't know the answer. Yeah, yeah. All right. So specifically, then, what a psychologist, I should say who, not that, who study learning study. So what are we studying? What kind of stuff? What kind of phenomena? 
Well, there's two broad types of questions. Now, I don't want you thinking this is some kind of either-or thing, but there are two sort of broad types of questions. It's not that researcher A only studies this, and researcher B only studies that. They're different aspects of the same kind of questions, but they're about process, process and product. So, in other words, how it happens and what the result is. And a single experiment, indeed, may, in fact, be looking at both of those things. Right? There's no... But there are the two sort of broad kinds of questions we can think about. So let's think about process kind of questions. So how the learning happens. So in other words, what at time one leads to the change at time two? By the way, isn't this a cool app? I have all the things here, and I just am able to advance the PowerPoint slides. Don't you think that's neat? Yeah, it's pretty cool, right? I'm not, I'm not watching Netflix up here. I've, I've given this lecture enough times, I probably could. <laughs> there are times, in the, this is one class because I've given this class so many times. It's, it's actually more so it's with the advanced stats class, the 3256, that I've been able to be talking about some very complicated thing in that class and planning what I'm making for dinner in my head at the same time. And that doesn't mean I'm clever, it just means I've talked about it so many times not yet, though. I'm not into the... I'm still feeling kind of rusty. I haven't done this since April. So I feel a little bit... Give me a break, okay? Just be nice. Like me. Please like me. Um, so what at time one leads to change in time two? So in other words, it's a mechanistic type question. It's a mechanism question. How, what, how time one affects time two mechanistically? What is the mechanism? What is the... Now, you might think to yourself, are you talking about physiology? Are you talking about how some sort of change happens in the nervous system? Maybe, but not necessarily. Not necessarily. So I certainly could be. I certainly could posit, and Pavlov did this, a lot of what he said was wrong, but he also, he also has a Nobel Prize, and they won't be talking for his work, and they, we'd still talk about him. Nobody will be talking about me next week, so they'll still be talking about Pavlov. Um, but you don't have to be. You don't have to be. You know, it's just like how, think about if you, if you take the language course, for example, or the, or the cognition course, or you took my memory course, maybe, I don't know, whatever. We can talk about mechanisms that are cognitive mechanisms without talking about the underlying physiology. That's, those are interesting questions, by the way, and I love them. I think they're great. But you needn't be talking about synapses and temporal and spatial summation in a certain part of your brain. You don't have to be. You can. So, so how does t- what happens to time one affect time two mechanistically? And under what conditions do you get learning? Because you don't always get learning. So if I was to, if something happens at time one, and then I test at time two and nothing's happened, I didn't get any learning under one condition, but uh, something happens at time one, the same thing, perhaps. But then, at time two, there's a change in behavior. We then say, what's the difference? What are the two, at those two different things, those two, in those two sort of setups, why did I get learning at one and not in the other. 
right? So under what conditions do you get learning? Uh, Sarah Shuttleworth talks a lot about this. So this is the interval, for example, the interval between the stimuli. So here's a couple of kinds of experiments. Eye blink conditioning. So we've got, if I was to blow a little puff of air into your eye, you blink. You can't not do that. You're hooked up that way. It's to protect your eyes. Right? That, and then you're wired like that. Not unlike how a dog is wired that if I put meat powder in the dog's mouth, it salivates. salivates. Frankly, if I put meat powder in your mouth, which sounds kind of weird, um, you'll also salivate. Right? So it's just you're hooked up that way. It's a reflex. What I can do, though, is I can make that puff of air predictable. How would I do that? So time goes like along here. And we have here... Uh, let's say a buzzer. And then here, just overlapping a little, we have the air puff. They're almost overlapping completely. They aren't. One's a little bit before the other. That's, that's what I'm trying to show you. That's called the interstimulus interval. Those are two stimuli. And for those of you scoring at home, this is the uh, conditioned stimulus. This is the old unconditioned stimulus. Don't worry about too much about that yet. We'll get there. But you should remember that from intro. So, that overlap we measure in freaking tenths of a second. And if I do it in, if I do more than like a second, you, you won't, it won't work. You won't blink in time. That's true for you. It's also true for a rabbit. It's fun you do it with people because you sit them in like a dentist chair. And you sort of and you strap their head in place to keep them steady. It's like something in Clockwork Orange. And then the air puff things here. Of course, they can they can leave the experiment any time. It's all ethics, blah blah blah. But it's like, it's just like you ever had that. At the, you go to the eye doctor and they're they're going to if you have glasses and they want to measure. I don't know what the hell they're measuring. I think they just like blowing air out of your eye. No, that's not what it's for, though. It's for something else. Because <clears throat> they were, they, it was for. I can't But it was a puff of air in my eye. I wish I had glaucoma because they did medical marijuana, my two favorite words. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so blow a little air in your eye. Taste diversions, though. Taste diversions. This is what I was talking about the rats. Wow. You know what we measure the interstimulus interval in there? Hours. Perhaps days. Right? In that case, CS is a flavor. Right? In the U.S. happens, the, the sickness <laughs> went over here. That's if you're a person. Not if a rat, because rats don't puke. 
Wow. You can associate... I love that. I've never done that before. That's actually kind of clever. Um, you can associate this... You being a rat, by the way. Also, if you're a pigeon, you can do it, but it's different. It's not the flavor. It's what it looks like. It's the color. But we do this. Humans do it. You can learn in one trial. And this, by the way, this takes multiple trials. Just one time. It's not... Takes a few times, then you realize buzzer, close your eyes. Then you don't get the puff of air. But this this will take multiple trials. This may take tens and tens of trials. This takes one, and it happens over maybe twenty-four hour period. And this does show up in people too, because a lot of people, for example, will uh, become averse to a certain kind of alcohol. Right? Oh, I can't drink tequila because one time I drank too much tequila and puked. And of course, it's not the tequila that made you sick. It was the, alpha, uh, the beverage alcohol. The, the, it was the methanol that made you sick. It wasn't, it wasn't the tequila. It's not the flavor of tequila. But you associate the flavor of tequila. You still drink out vodka? Oh, yeah, I'm drinking vodka right now. <laughs> oh, not tequila. Or gin. Things like that, right? Things with novel, distinct flavors. Just like rats. Right? When I was about 18, I, 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 if I went into a liquor store and I saw a bottle of gin, it would turn my stomach. Even, now, now I have four kinds of gin at home because I worked at it. How are you going to make a good martini without gin? Vodka martini isn't a martini. It's a gin. It's cold vodka, which I like. But it's not a martini. Damn it. So, look at that. We can look at this thing called the interstimulus interval. Here we're measuring it in tenths of a second. Here we're measuring it in, well, we could measure it in tenths of a second, but probably better to use hours or a calendar. Huh. Now, you might, we can then ask the question, why is it like this? And we, I, I, you could probably call it some pretty plausible evolutionary reasons why it's like this. But mechanistically, why is it like this? Not functionally, not... Well, this makes sense because, you know, gastrointestinal problems take a while to develop. Sure. Yeah, that, but that's not the description of how it happened mechanistically. Right? So, on product-type questions... The kind of questions you're asking here is what are the long-term changes in behavior? What are the short-term changes in behavior? The short-term, and again, we could use these two examples. Why not? Short-term change in behavior here is you, you, you blink when you hear a buzzer and you don't even need to puff air. Short-term change in behavior here, if you're defining short-term in the same terms here, absolutely nothing. Long-term change in behavior here, you never eat that food again. Long-term change in behavior here, the next day when you go back in, you probably, if you go back in, you will, it'll take a few more trials again of pairing the buzzer and the puff of air for you to start blinking. So there aren't always really big long-term changes in behavior. Sometimes things are very moment-to-moment. In fact, a lot of learning is like that. A lot of the kind of stuff we'll talk about, especially in classical conditioning, which is what both these are. 
When you look at something like drug conditioning, which is a fascinating area, um, drugs, people taking, and bloody, some of you guys took my neurofarm class last year. Um, the tolerance that you develop to a drug, a lot of it can be described as a learning phenomenon. So you learn when you take the drug. You're, you, now, again, learning doesn't have to be caught. It doesn't have to be conscious. It doesn't have to be available to consciousness. In fact, most of the stuff we learn is not available to consciousness. I could ask you something like, how do you read? You, don't, you can't answer that question. You just do. Right? One of the most pervasive... How do you talk? One of the most pervasive... Two of the most pervasive parts of being a human being. You, you have no idea how you do them. But you do them fine, right? So a lot of what happens in drug conditioning, it's the same kind of thing. When you take heroin, which I probably would suggest none of you should do that. Look, your own life, go ahead, but I wouldn't do it. Your body has a reaction, it's called, a, it's called preparatory conditioning. What's the form of the conditioned response? The conditioned response is like the blank or the avoiding the food is a conditioned response. It's something you've learned. The conditioned response in when you take heroin is that your body, I'm not going to get all the physiological part of it, your body in essence gets ready for the heroin. It's kind of like if anybody here smokes or has smoked before, there are certain situations you get in where you want to smoke a cigarette. Right? And what happens is when you go to quit smoking, you just avoid those situations for a while. And usually that's, that's one of the most important things to do. Easiest time to quit smoking is when you're not going to be in any of those situations. Just as you move is a great time to quit smoking because you're not going to have any of the Stimulate around because you're in a new house. Right? Easy. Er. Same sort of thing here. You get, when you get the needle out and the spoon and you draw the heroin into the, the hypodermic needle that you probably shared with a guy, 28% of IV drug users are HIV positive. Bad idea. Anyway, if we made it legal, Anyway, that's a whole other discussion. But as soon as you take that needle out, your body's getting ready for heroin. As soon as you show up in a place where you would get heroin, your body's getting ready for heroin. And in fact, this even happens in rats. If we're going to give rats opiate, uh, morphine, not opium, you, little, you give rats little opium pipes and they smoke them. Um, you give rats morphine. You could do that. It would be kind of cool. How do we test? Well, what's, what are the effects of morphine or, or heroin? Heroin is just acetylmorphine. It's special with heroin. It's analgesia, right? You don't feel pain. How can we test that? That's easy. There's a thing you do with rats called the hot plate test. You put a rat on a hot plate. It just, it just heats up. It's, not, it's hot like if you're not cooking the rat, that defeats the purpose. They can be delicious, but um, just see how long it takes to take its paw up and lick it. 
right? That's all it is. It's, it's called so the paw leg test, not the hot plate test. So you put the rat on the, on the hot plate. It, as soon as it does that, it's like, take them off. It's done. Because that means it started to hurt. But it's, it's not enough to do any real damage to the animal. It's as hot as like your car gets in a, on a warm summer day on the roof kind of thing. Like it's not, you can touch that and go, it's hot. But it's not like you go, end my hand, I'll never use it again. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's sensible enough, you're not doing any real damage. So how do we measure this? We see how long it takes for the rat, rat to lick its paw when it is being given an injection of morphine or when it's being given an injection of saline. It's a very simple thing that detects how well it's working. It's really easy. So what you do is you take the rat and you put it, you always give them the morphine in a black box. And yet half of them is black, half of them is white. Yeah, we're not idiots. And then you change it around. So you've always given black box, black box, black box. The rat has actually learned that black box means morphine coming. Rat's body gets ready for morphine. Now you do it in the white box, and there's way more analgesic because the animal is not expecting the morphine. So it doesn't counter it with this conditioned response. This actually happens in people. So, and in fact, it happened a lot. There was a rash of uh, right after Vietnam War, uh, or during that time, there was a rash of, of, of American uh, servicemen coming home and overdosing. And the reason they were overdosing, well, why does anybody take heroin? Because it feels good. Right? It feels apparently great. I've, I've watched someone take heroin. They looked like they were having a lot of fun. You know, I've heard it described as a, for 45 minutes, your whole body's having an orgasm. It's like, well, we should probably go get some now. Mm-hmm. Sounds great. Downside to it, of course. But, so these guys, would, when they were in Vietnam, they were taking heroin because it was really easily easy to get, and fighting wars is hard. Fighting a war that you probably don't know why you're doing is harder. Fighting a war where you can't even see who's shooting at you is probably really hard. So, guys were doing this to get through the day. Not everybody, but people were. Then they get home. The whole country didn't really, a lot of the country didn't like the war, so and they didn't like people that fought it. So they didn't, they didn't know what to feel. It's not like, hey, ticker tape parade, we beat Hitler. It's pretty bad, right? These guys are in trouble. They take, say, well, I know how to feel better. I'll take some heroin. They get the same amount they would get back when they were in Vietnam, and it would kill them because they were not ready for the heroin. It's called the shooting gallery. That they used to call a place where you shot up a shooting gallery. It's a very 1970s term. So the form of the conditioned response in that drug in, with heroin, uh, so it's morphine, they're, heroin and morphine are basically the same drug, um, is preparatory. It's the opposite. On the other hand, with alcohol, it goes in the same direction. People get drunker at bars than they do in their own homes when they drink the same amount of alcohol. And you can measure this with things like their reaction time. Like it's, it's not just subjective feeling of drunkenness. It's the actual effects the alcohol has.
this is how I, how I stopped smoking. I was for six months. Every time I smoked a cigarette, I ate a, a cough drop. Now I just eat cough drops. I, I, got, I ended up with a cavity because I was e eating non-prescription, non-sugar-free uh, ones. These are full of delicious aspartame, and I'm fine. <laughs> aspartame's harmless anyway. Here's another interesting question. Classical conditioning, where to take, again, that's just pairing a neutral stimulus with a stimulus that isn't neutral, that, that elicits a reaction. So you can look at something like we take the, we turn on a light, so same kind of diagram. We turn on a light, and we get, we give the pigeon some food. And the light is in a box. So it's lit up. It's the size of a loony. And it's green. And it turns on. And then that's on for 10 seconds. And then about, oh, I don't know, eight seconds in, a little feeder opens up and the pigeon can eat some food. Pigeon doesn't have, to, doesn't have to do anything to get the food. But you know what they do? They start pecking at the light. Doesn't get the food any faster. But they start pecking at the light. This isn't like when you say, okay, first you peck the light, then you get some food. You haven't taught them that at all. That's not the experiment. Light comes on for 10 seconds, and about 8 seconds in, food starts. Pigeon starts just eating food. Right? Sorry, pecking light when the light comes on. It's ridiculous. What kind of behavior is that? <laughs> doesn't make any sense, does it? It's bizarre. But they do it. So why does that, that's actually something people still haven't quite figured out why that happens. We take advantage of it, in fact, when we train pigeons to peck at lights. Um, there's, it's interesting, we can look at the form of it when the pigeon is pecking and the reinforcer, so I should say the reinforcer, it's not a reinforcer, and the uh, unconditioned uh, stimulus is food. Uh, they, the, the way they peck is the same way they peck to eat grain when it's water. They sweep across like they do when they when they pick up water to drink. So somehow they're treating the light as the the food of the water. But why? Like what would, it's bizarre. So it's an interesting sort of product of learning that this happens. And in fact, when this first was published, it was a long time ago. What? Check it in more. Nineteen sixty-nine. People like I said, I don't believe that. So everybody was replicating it. And everybody's like, eh, it works. Wild. Okay. So, so the sub-areas within these things, like we can talk about the acquisition of something. Some people are interested in, you ever heard the expression, the, a learning curve, right? You know that? So you're interested in the acquisition part of learning. So... You got time down here and response here. And we look at the, some people are really interested, and this is especially true in classical condition, the kind of stuff we've been talking about today, you're interested in this.
You're interested in what's happening when it's acquiring it. When the animal is, is when the animal is learning. By the way, this reminds me of something. Um, you know the expression, this has a steep learning curve and everyone thinks that that means it's hard? Right? Generally people say, oh, that's a real steep learning curve. They mean it, it's going to be hard. By definition, that's easy. Because think about it. Yeah, if, if it's really steep and I get all the way to the top right like that, that was easy. A slow, gradual curve like this, that's hard, isn't it? So that term is being used completely incorrectly, and it pisses me off. I'm just putting that out there. That's a long. It's. It, it, I never. The, look, the, the language is like that now, but it's just being used wrong. It just grates on me. I actually met a, friend, a guy that I would consider a friend totally because he said that on a podcast, a steep learning curve, and I wrote in and said, "No, that's not right." He's a tech journalist that I know, like, no guy from Los Angeles. We go to conferences and hang out and stuff. And it started because you're not using that term properly. Odd. So acquisition's interesting because, some, again, look at some of these paradigms. Sometimes it's very quick. Sometimes it's very, it takes a long time. But depending on, if instead of this being time, like actual seconds, if this was trials... Number of pairings. In fact, this this would be the eye blink, right? And this would be the taste. So instead of this being time, instead let's make it trials. Number of pairings. It totally changes because one actually happens very quickly as far as number of trials goes. Over time, actual passage of elapsed time takes much longer. Right? Questions so far? Okay. Good. So there's also, we can look at questions about different types of learning. There's different types of learning? Yes, there's different types of learning. Well, almost certainly. I'm, I'm trying to be nice here to the other side that believe there's only one kind of learning. So I'm saying, well, maybe, but that side's really not, no, it's ridiculous. I'm being, I'm being charitable. It seems to me to be pretty unlikely that there's only one kind of learning. It's kind of like saying there aren't different perceptual systems. There's only one kind of perception. Right? Oh, yeah, it's all just converting energy into neural energy. So it's all really the same thing. Yeah, okay, I kind of see what you mean. And they all have to operate in the same psychophysical principles, Weber's law, Fecker's power law, yeah, yeah, yeah. But seeing and hearing are different, man. Touch, you know, pressure and... Your kinesthetic sense of knowing your balance are, yeah, I know they 
no, they're not really the same. So saying that there's not, that, but this whole idea that there aren't different types of learning is kind of like, there, sorry, that there aren't, is kind of like saying there's no different kinds of perception. I see the argument, but it's a little bit weak. And by a little bit, I mean really, really weak. There's been a search for general laws or a general process type of learning for almost 100 years. Yeah, that's about right. Maybe even a bit more. 120? Yeah. Let's go with 100 years. That's pretty good, actually. Early teens. Maybe a bit more, but that's, that's probably about 19, early 1900s. So people have been looking for general laws or what's called general, general process theory. How all learning works. How we can narrow everything down to one set of phenomena. This is driven by something I like to call physics envy. Physics is great. Physics is cool, by the way. Makes you a good person when it's physics. But, because think about physics. It's got equations. Force equals mass times acceleration. It's got equals mc squared. It's got Avogadro's number. Those are great. Those are, don't worry about those things, by the way. If you don't even know what they are, does it matter? But if you don't, I question where you went to high school. But those are things. Those Look at that. It's an equation. I could just write it out. If I know this and this, I know that. Wow. That's neat. Wow, this is very exciting. Well, I think maybe that's kind of stupid, actually. Trying to do there's a whole there's a book called Behavior or Behavior System by Clark Hull. He wrote it in like 1930, and he was into physics, and it's all these equations about how learning works, and really they don't work. But it's on like 130 pages of equations. Yeah, it's not that good. It's not a page turner. It has not been optioned as a movie directed by Tarantino. It is not fun. There's also very little of it is true. But he was trying to do, oh, what science. Because you got to think about what's happened to psychology in the early 1900s, right? Some of you guys, probably maybe at least one of you, a couple of you, three of you are taking history of psych prog right now for you. And the early 1900s was a time when psychology started out pretty scientific, you know, Vunt and all that stuff. And psychophysics, great stuff. And that actually, psychophysics has equations. Perception, it's great stuff. And then it goes into like, uh, and then people start saying, oh, yeah, well, uh, introspection. I'm just going to sit back and think about how my brain works. Then it's like this. And then we are in the danger of becoming philosophers again. We all know how painful that could be. So what happens in the early 1900s is people that are studying learning go, no, man, we're taking, we're taking it back from the break. You know, and you have Freud saying, we all have sex with our mothers. Because he talked apparently a little bit like some, what's the deal with that? <laughs> and airplane peanuts, am I right, people? So you can still make kind of Seinfeld references and people still kind of get, it's beautiful, it makes me happy. So, you know, people are pretty pissed off, the scientific psychologists, so they probably, they, they, it rebounds probably too far the other way. And they go, oh, we need equations. Everything should have equations, more equations. 
it's probably kind of a silly idea, kind of a crazy approach. We're doing a life science here. Think of biology. I, I maintain, and I've said this to anybody, and I'll say this to anybody, they'll listen, that psychology is, is a branch of biology. We're, we're studying living things. We're scientifically studying living things. That strikes me as biology. Um, it doesn't lessen what we do in any way. It just, it's thinking biologically is important as a psychologist. doesn't matter what kind of psychology you do, by the way, either. I don't care if you're developmentalist, social psychologist, personality, whatever. You're still dealing with a living thing, and you still have to keep biological principles in mind. So in biology, they have an overriding principle. Evolution. Nothing in biology makes any sense without the light of evolution. There is no biology before Darwin. There's people collecting bugs. Which was great stuff, but what you call it biology. Right? So there's this overriding principle. <coughs> there's a lot of commonalities in how systems work. A circulatory system is a circulatory system is a circulatory system. In a vertebrate, we all have hearts. Yeah, I know some is a two-chambered heart, four-chambered heart, whatever, but they're all hearts. Okay, so there's commonalities there, but we don't deny that there are differences between a, a, a mammalian heart and a reptilian heart. Sure, of course. Right? Each species is different, and, and that's demonstrably true. We don't. That's not something you have to even go. You know, it's not like biologists go. I wonder if they're different. Well, yeah. Right. So every species is different, but so. I don't know, chickadees are different from people, but chickadees have lungs, people have lungs. Chickadees have hearts, people got hearts, everybody's got eyes. They work roughly the same way. Hearts work exactly the same way. The stuff in the cells works exactly as the, the mitochondria. The mitochondria work, for example, for example, exactly the same way. Genes work the same way in a person as they do in a blade of grass. So there are commonalities, but they're obviously different species. So I think in psychology, well, in, in learning, we can use this as an example. I also believe, frankly, in psychology, we should be using this, and this is why we have a course in evolutionary psychology now. Um, but we can do this with learning, where we can say, look, is there an overriding principle in learning? And then we can look at interesting phenomena. We can probably classify them and say that this is one kind of learning, this is another kind of learning, and we can still look at species differences, all this stuff at once. So the overriding principle then would be looking at learning about or being able to predict when one event or trying to define learning, circumstances says without learning. Um, being able to predict the future is important. There you go. Let's go with that. And how do we predict the future? Correlations between events. Causes and effects. I love, by the way, through the year, this will happen. This is all going to get the pile of stuff that's here. It's going to get bigger and bigger. This glove was here last year. <laughs> this will get bigger, this pile, as the eventually there'll be umbrellas. Seriously? Always happens. So the key things are 
being able to, being able to, how do you predict the future? I look at causes and effects. When causes and effects go together enough, when I see the cause, I know what the effect's going to be. All learning is about, in a lot of respects, is being able to predict the future from the past. Right? Think about that. That's really true, isn't it? I can predict that if the buzzer goes on, you're going to blow air in my eye. I can predict if I eat poison, well, it's been erased now. I'm going to get sick. Oh, that's right. Right? So you're predicting the future. That's what you're actually doing. That's what, in a lot of respects, that's what learning is. It's the volume one. Oh, Saku Koivu announces retirement from the NHL. That's sad. Well, the NHL Game Center, I don't know what that. That means then I don't have to force, well, not force. My daughter and wife don't have to put up with watching hockey on television. I watch it on here. Hmm. Yeah, it's awesome. Or my phone, or my computer, any device. Well, not any device, I can't watch it on my toaster. <laughs> you know, I'm assuming they will watch it. By the way, this whole, I, you know, and I have a lot of Apple products. I don't want a watch. Does anybody here want the Apple watch? Did you see that yet? No, what's that? I don't need a watch. I have a pocket watch. It's called a phone. And I'm not going to text on a thing. I have enough trouble with my vision. I'm not going to look like an idiot. Just saying. So it's the correlation between events is probably the key thing. And then we can talk about different things like, <coughs> and it's predicting the future. So I'm a chickadee, I put a piece of food here, I'll be able to find that food next time. Because I put it there, I can predict the future. Right? This, uh, well, this is a phone now. When someone tells you it's a phone now in the future, when you see one of those, it's a phone. You're basically predicting the future. That's all learning is about, is about predicting the future. So it's correlating events. And that's basically what we're doing here. If, you're, if you've got the, here, what we would always call here a conditioned stimulus and unconditioned stimulus, that's fine. We could also talk about sort of Skinner-type learning, right? Operating conditioning, where uh, if the bird or if the rat pushes the bar 10 times, it gets some food. It learns one event leads to another event. It learns how to predict the future. Questions? Make sense? Okay. It's a really, it's a really good place to stop. Would it bother you if we stopped five minutes early? You'd be okay with that? Because it's just a perfect place to actually stop. Slide into something else, and I'll get like a third of the way to that slide. So let's pack it in for today, and uh, we'll continue this next time. Thanks, everybody.
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.